Good morning, everyone. When I listen to the words of these songs, these unbelievable, theologically rich words, I am reminded, and sometimes we forget this in churches that have Bible in the middle of their name, that when we worship like this, this isn't the appetizer. As if the sermon and the hearing of God's Word is the entree. Actually, what's unique about Christian worship is there's a double entree, right? The entree of experiencing God, responding to God in worship, and then hearing God speak to us in His Word. And we have just had an incredible entree. And I want to invite you in the days and the months forward that we will set aside everything in our minds and our hearts, and we will focus on the wonder of the privilege of worshiping Almighty God in song. Amen? Amen. Well, today I am really excited because I'm doing something I've never done before. I'm launching a series on 1 John, this little bitty letter (coughs) that is so timely, uh, that is so amazing, Near, it falls near the end of the New Testament. And here's why it's so timely and so amazing. Because what First John does for us is helps us see the two great distinctives that Christianity offers the world. I mean the world all around us. And that is loving God and loving others. How to love God and how to love others. I can't think of anything more timely, anything more relevant, anything more important for us. And that's what we're going to be mining for in this series on 1 John. Now what I want to do this morning is I want to focus on the loving God side of this as we look at the introduction to 1 John found in the first four verses. And I want to do that because of the reality that what rules your heart rules your life. So if money rules your heart, money rules your life. If your kid's success rules your heart over and above everything else, then that will rule your life. If it's your appearance, if it's your pleasures, they will rule your life. If it's the Chicago Bears, well, you might not have much of a life for a year. (laughs) But if God rules your heart, then man... What a life you will experience. You know, the Bible is not a random collection of stories of human heroes. The Bible is very intentional from the beginning to the end. It is one story about one hero, Jesus Christ, who transforms unloving and broken people into people who deeply love God. I mean, think of Joseph. Talk about a rough beginning, sold into slavery, betrayed by his brothers. Moses, in his brokenness, when God comes to him, Moses said, I think you got the wrong guy. I'm really not up for this. God, as a matter of fact, there's my brother Aaron go visit him. He's way more eloquent than I am. Basically, Moses saying, no thanks. Gideon did the same thing, only Gideon hid from God. 
The godly woman Ruth, this Old Testament, beautiful Old Testament character, man, she experienced devastating loss when her husband died. Elijah, the, this great, this famous prophet, panicked and wanted God to end his life. Peter, well, you know the story. Peter, Peter denied Christ. Paul, when we meet Paul early in the book of Acts, uh, Paul, man, Paul is full of hate. I mean, hate. You see, these people, every single one of them, just like you and me, were often, often easily deceived, sometimes disloyal, and always, always burdened and almost overwhelmed with the pain, the, the brutality of life. But they were people that loved God. They became men and women that deeply, profoundly loved God. What made the difference? What enabled them to transcend their circumstances and to become people that were flat out in love with God the Father? And there's one word, and it's the word grace. <coughs> what does grace mean? Grace means that when God calls you, he goes with you. And he begins to change your heart. And he teaches you to love him from the inside out. And that is the dominant, one of the dominant points of all these stories, of all these biblical characters. And it's a dominant theme here in 1 John. And this morning, I want to attempt to show you that. So what I want to do is I want to, well, let's start and let's read these first four verses. We'll put them up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, grab a Bible in front of you if you need one. <coughs> and let's begin. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this is... This we proclaim concerning the word of life. And the life appeared, we have seen it, and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write these to make our joy complete. So what do these verses tell us about what it means to love God? What does loving God look like according to Christianity? How can you and I know whether we really love God? So today we're going to look at four marks in these four verses. You will know you love God if you believe in Christ, if you desire to share Christ, if you... If you experience Christ and you know the joy of Jesus Christ, each of these four themes that emerges in these four verses is repeated over and over in 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And by the way, this John, the author of John, is not John the Baptist, it's John the Apostle, the Apostle of Jesus Christ. 
this John is the author of the Gospel of John, and we know that because the words and the content are so similar between the Gospel of John and 1 John, even though John's name is never mentioned here in 1 John. This same John is the author of these three letters, and he's also the author of the book of Revelation. And what's significant is we see over and over in his wording here is that John wants us to understand he's writing as an eyewitness. Someone who heard, someone who's seen, seen, seen. Someone who has touched, ministered with Jesus, lived with Jesus for three years. In verse 2, he uses a strong word, testify. I am testifying, I'm sharing my testimony. It's a word that also had a legal use. And what John is doing is he's telling us, I'm not making casual conversation. I'm swearing a deposition. This is my eyewitness account. Now, why? Why this emphasis on being an eyewitness? Because false teachers have come into these churches that John is writing to in modern-day Turkey, and they split the church. We see this in chapter 2 and verse 19. People have been in the church, and they're leaving the church because these false teachers have come in and said there is no way Jesus is God. Because there's no way God could ever become a man because the physical material world is evil, and God wouldn't stoop to do that. And so John is playing his eyewitness card and saying, I have seen him. And these false teachers are wrong. So let's pick this up. John, tell us, how do we know we love God? What does love, loving God look like? And mark number one, you believe in Christ. You believe two things about Christ, John tells us. So look at verse one. The first is we believe that Jesus is divine, fully God. We see this in the front end of verse 1 when he says Jesus was from the beginning. In other words, from eternity past, from before the foundation of the world. Now, how do we know that? Because in verse 2, he tells us Jesus, this word of life who became flesh, is eternal. He has always been with the Father. Jesus, as a matter of fact, said the same thing about himself in the Gospels. He made these crazy outlandish statements. Like before Abraham was, I am. The Father and I are one. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So the Jesus we meet in the Gospels believed he was God. Here John, the apostle of Jesus, is declaring the same thing. Jesus is fully God. The second thing he tells us is that Jesus is human, fully God and fully man. This is the point of saying we heard, we've seen, 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 uh, and we've touched. John wants us to understand that this Jesus isn't a myth, this Jesus isn't a fable. Jesus was a man. Wait a minute, Rob. Hold on, time out. People today say you know, doctrine shouldn't matter. Actually, doctrine doesn't matter. What matters is that you live a good life, right? You've heard that, right? You know, the, the problem with that statement 
is uh, that is a statement of doctrine. It's the doctrine, the doctrine doesn't matter. John is saying, no way. Christianity stands or falls on the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man in one person. This, by the way, was the earthquake of Christianity in the first century. God is not impersonal as the Greeks and the Romans taught. Uh, God is personal. Uh, God isn't an it we try to strive toward. We try to strive to please by the goodness of our life. No, God came to us in Jesus Christ to rescue us from our brokenness. He became a man. So it was Christianity. I want to say this as strongly as I possibly can. I want you to think about this. It was Christianity that introduced into the world love. There is no basis for love if God is impersonal. Building on the Old Testament, Christianity introduced into the world divine love, human love, and the basis for it. Christianity introduced in the first century to the world human rights, the equality of all people, none of which could exist apart from Christianity. Jesus Christ changed the world forever. But this radical claim that John is establishing here in just these first four verses, this introduction, Jesus fully man, fully God, fully man in one person, became and still is 2,000 years later the scandal of Christianity, the stumbling block, the reason for often the rejection of Christianity. I love how John Piper puts his finger on this. This quote I'm going to share with you is a little long, but it builds, so let's look at it. Piper writes, many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains a mere spiritual reality. That, by the way, was my family. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing a particular command, and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then, many, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. I don't think it's so much the mystery of a divine and human nature in one person that causes most people to stumble. The stumbling block is that if the doctrine is true, every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. Everything he says is law. Everything he did is perfect. And the particularity of his work and word flow out into history in the form of a particular inspired book that claims a universal authority over every other book that has ever been written. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. When God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life. Because this one Jewish man says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things, and this man becomes the measure of all things. Now we get to the good part. The incarnation is a violation of the Bill of Human Rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, their fall. This is totalitarian. It's authoritarian, imperialism, absolutism. Who does he think he is? Say it with me. God. Now, we know these people. These people are all around us. They're our friends. They're our co-workers. They're our neighbors. They're our family members. I remember when I first came to Christ, and I was the first one in my family to come to Christ in generations. And I began the process of sharing the gospel with different members of my family. My brother came to Christ. But I remember sharing it with my grandfather. My grandfather uh, was a proud man. And when we were done, he said to me, Rob, if you expect me to believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, and Christianity is unique among all religions, I want you to know I will never believe that. And he never did. And he died as an unbeliever. We know these people. We love these people. We care about these people. But um, this identity of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, is the scandal of Christianity. I want you to understand that. And what John is saying is if you want to love God, if you want to walk with God, it starts by correct beliefs about Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man that Jesus Christ alone is unique and alone the hope of the world. Let's go on to the second mark. Uh, The second mark of loving God, a second way we can know we love God, is that you are a person that shares Christ. You are compelled to talk to others about Jesus Christ. And so this is why John says, proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. We proclaim what we have seen and heard. We proclaim what we have experienced. John so loved Jesus that in spite of the split in the church, in spite of the hostility of the false teachers, in spite of the enormous cost of standing up and speaking up for Jesus Christ in the first century, John couldn't keep his mouth shut. We proclaim to you Now, isn't this exactly what made the early church, the first century church, so great? The church in the book of Acts? It was their fearlessness, their indifference to what others thought. The early church couldn't keep it in. So I I will show you in Acts chapter 5, we have this amazing encounter with Peter and others before the highest court in Israel, the Sanhedrin. And the highest court is forbidding them to proclaim Christ, to preach Christ, to teach Christ. And Peter, and this is the same Peter who before the resurrection denied Jesus Christ a number of times. Look at what he says. We must obey God rather than human beings. Can you say that? Do you get that? 
I must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. And just to put icing on the cake in a nice way, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. What does it mean to obey him? It means we proclaim him. Regardless of the cost, What Peter had experienced as an apostle, John had experienced as an apostle. And they had to share. Hey, man, I just got engaged. Look at my ring. Hey, I, I just got married. Hey, I just closed the deal of the century. My team won. I got to tell you what my my kid did. I've just got to tell people how much more so with the gospel because the gospel isn't sports, the gospel isn't the weather. The gospel is ultimate reality. Now, yes, and let me press pause here. This flies in the face of this modern notion. I talk about it a fair amount that all things religion must be kept private. That's a a, a dominant notion in our culture today. Oh, religion's a private affair. Religion has got to be kept private, which is uh, not only, um, if you stop and think about it, incoherent, it's also inconsistent because that's a religious statement. All religion needs to be kept private except my statement that religion must be private. You can't have it both ways. Uh, 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 You cannot deny what you affirm. So yes, of course, we need to be very wise at work. If you're a teacher in your school, your public school, and other settings, but I want you to see John's heart here. What he experienced, he wanted for others. Now, yes, some of us, God has made some of us to be more introverted. Some of us more extroverted. But what I want to say to you this morning is if you do not, as a believer in Jesus Christ, feel an inward compulsion to share with others what you have experienced in Jesus Christ, you should wonder whether you really love God. Think about that. Sharing, again, sharing Jesus isn't like talking about sports or music or work or, or school. It's ultimate reality. It's life and death. And if you love God, you will want to talk to others winsomely and wisely. Let's go on. To love God means we believe in Christ. It means we have this desire to share. And third, what John tells us here in these verses is that we experience Christ. Look at verse 3. 
John says here something we don't see coming, something we don't anticipate. He uses a word actually a couple times that surprises us because instead of saying we proclaim what we have seen and heard so that you might be saved, he says we proclaim this so you might have fellowship. It's a term uh, describing a significant depth of experience and intimacy. The Greek word behind our English word fellowship is a rich word koinonia that means a variety of different things, but here is emphasizing warm personal relationships with other believers and an even warmer and even deeper and even more intimate relationship with God. I mean, look at the last sentence of verse 3. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Who talks like that? I want to focus on this sentence for a couple minutes uh, because this is uh, so important for us. John is saying something key, saying something huge here. John is telling us that loving God is more than just believing in Christ. It's experiencing Him in your life. John is saying God is not content to be mere head knowledge. He became a human so we could have fellowship with Him, so we could experience Him in our lives. I love uh, an illustration of this that comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. It's a story between, uh, about Moses and God. And Moses, in effect, comes to God and says, God, I, I love you. I want to know you. Show me your glory. And God says, Moses, I love you. But we've got a minor problem here. If I show you my glory, it'll kill you. No one can see the glory of God and live. So God says, here's what we're going to do, and here's what he did. He put Moses uh, in, in between some massive rocks, and he covered Moses, and then God passed by Moses and the rocks in his glory. And Moses heard it. And then when God got an appropriate distance, he removed his hand, removed the cover, and he allowed Moses to see his back. You cannot see the face of God and live. And so what, what is the point of that? Well, one of the points of that is you and I, as humans, can never look directly at the glory of God. Just as we cannot look directly or sustain a direct look at the sun. Or we can't even look at an eclipse for a couple minutes. Because the light is in too intense, so we need glasses with an eclipse. We need filters. We need help to, to look at the sun. Jesus Christ is the divine filter that enables us to see the glory of God. This is what he is saying with the word fellowship in verse 3. It's Jesus and our fellowship with him that enables us in Jesus to see the greatness, the majesty, the glory, the goodness, uh, and the love of God. 
Jesus Christ came so that we might not just merely have facts, head knowledge, but so that we might see the glory of God. It's the word fellowship. Intimacy, experience, communion. Now what this means, and I said this to our men at our men's Bible study on Thursday morning, this means that Christianity refuses to be either a left-brained or a right-brained religion. It refuses to be either analytical or experiential. Head or heart, Christianity is both. It's believing in Christ, Mark number one, and it's experiencing fellowshipping with Christ, Mark number three. So when Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, that all of us as God's people might know God better, he is praying both intellectually and emotionally. He's praying about our heads and our hearts. It's exactly, precisely what Moses was longing for in Exodus 33 when he said, God, show me your glory. Do you ask God to show him your, his glory? Are you open to that glory? Do you long for that glory? I want you to look and see how Scottish theologian John Murray expresses this when he says this. It is necessary for us to recognize that there is an intelligent mysticism. I love that phrase, intelligent mysticism in the life of faith, of living union and communion with the exalted and ever-present Redeemer, he communes with his people, and his people commune with him in conscious reciprocal love, fellowship. The life of true faith cannot be that of cold metallic assent. <coughs> it must have the passion and the warmth of love and communion, because communion with God is the crown and the apex. It's the Super Bowl of true religion. Do you know this intelligent mysticism? Do you experience your theology? You will know you love God when Jesus fills your head and your heart. It's what the psalmist is saying, Psalm 43, oh, taste, 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 and see that God is good. It's what Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says, that Christ might dwell in our hearts by faith. Now, why does this matter? Why is this such a big deal? Because you and I, even as followers of Jesus Christ, tend to base our, our inner life, our inner feelings on our outward circumstances, right? Not, don't look so pious. We all do this. How are you doing? Well, if you're a mom, you're doing as good as your kids are doing. How are you doing if you're in the marketplace where often you're only doing as good as the job is going? We base our inner life on our outward circumstances. We do this all the time, all of us. I do this. You will know you love God when your inner life is full of the wonder of the gospel, of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, regardless of what is going on around you. Now let me speak personally about this for a moment. 
and talk about how, I want to talk about how I fleshed this out uh, to help you think about this. This is why I believe the Bible is so important because it's in the Bible that we hear God speak. It's in the Bible that we meet and we experience God. So what this means for me as I read through the Bible, I am regularly mining for verses that I memorize. And recently I was in 2 Corinthians and over the course of reading through Corinthians, uh, there were probably eight to ten verses that I committed to memory. And I have spent months this summer and into this fall going over and over these verses, quoting these verses, thinking about the words, asking questions of these verses, asking, thinking about application of these verses, what it means for me. I pray these verses that I've memorized, and I ask God to drive them into the depths of my soul. So, for example, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the glory of God are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. How does Paul say there we get to transformation? By contemplation. The contemplation of the glory of God. So what I've been doing for months is I've been contemplating the glory, creation glory. What is, what is um, this I see in nature? Tell me about the glory of God. I've been contemplating the glory of the perfect life of Jesus Christ. And Jesus left the splendor and Jesus lived this way for me. I've been contemplating the suffering, the rejection, the death of Christ, the, uh, the resurrection, the coming glory of the new heavens and the new earth. And I contemplate and I contemplate because transformation is a result of contemplation. And God has been using this verse in my life. And here's why I take the time to do this. Because I'm regularly reminded if God went to such lengths to rescue me, how could I not go to such lengths to know him? So I'm in Ephesians now. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul is praying and he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches... He might strengthen you with power by his spirit in your inner being so that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses understanding. I will never be content with mere head knowledge. I'm going to go to whatever lengths I need to go to be able to experience the wonder and the reality of Jesus Christ in my life. And for me, the way I do that is by driving the Word of God deep into my life. And I long for that experience for you. Now this brings us to the fourth, the final mark. This will go quickly. 
It's this issue of verse 4, this issue of joy, that you and I will know we love God, you and I will be growing in our love of God if the joy of Christ dominates the landscape of our life. Look at verse 4. We write this to make our joy complete. Two things. When he says our joy, he's not just talking about his joy. He's talking about the joy of all who know Jesus Christ. And notice it's not a casual joy. It's not a partial joy. It's a joy that's moving toward fullness and completion. (laughs) Now, I don't know if any of you have ever had water in your basement, but I have. And actually, in the humor and the providence of God, just about six weeks earlier, we had just finished our basement, carpeted, completely carpeted uh, our basement, and then on Saturday, the rains came. And this was back in the old building, and I I was preaching that Sunday, so I checked, and the basement was good, and I went and I began to preach. We had multiple services like we do now, and somewhere between the first and the second service, somebody grabbed me, I think it was my wife, and said, hey, we got a problem. We have water in the basement, and the water is rising. And I didn't want to lose my job, so I continued to preach. By the way, I've been bitter about that ever since. (laughs) Couple more services, I get home, there's a couple guys there, and and we have a problem, and it was bad. But my story pales in comparison with the story of a man who bought a house when every time it rained, he got water in his basement. And when it was dry, I mean dry for periods of weeks, his basement was always dank, damp, mildewy, and moldy, and it smelled. And nothing he, go, could, nothing he did could change the problem. And the problem never changed, but he did figure out the reason for the problem because one day in talking to a neighbor, his neighbor said, don't you understand? All these houses in our neighborhood have been built on a subterranean river. So when the water comes down, the river goes up. And even when it's dry... Our basements are always going to be moldy and mildewy and and damp because our houses are built on the subterranean river. Jesus Christ is our subterranean source of joy. He's the river that always flows, never ceases to flow. Even when we are dry, even when we are parched, even when we are discouraged, Now this, please, this doesn't mean we'll always be happy. How are you doing today? Well, you know, I'm just really happy. My family's lost in the jungle. My apartment burned down. I totaled my car. But I am happy. No. That's nuts. That's not what John is talking about. I mean, John's readers were facing enormous problems as they stood for Christ. These were the first people in the world to ever stand for Jesus Christ. And the first century was a brutal century, by the way. And standing for Christ was even more brutal still. But what John is saying here in this last verse when he talks about our joy being complete, and I think sometimes we don't have the faith to really believe this. John is saying there is a river of joy running through your life. That co, <coughs> excuse me, that coexists with life's deepest griefs. 
It coexists. There's joy here. There's grief here. And that river is Jesus. One of the ways to think of joy is that joy is the humble defiance that Jesus, not my circumstances, is going to set the agenda of my heart. And by the way, you and I don't get to joy by pursuing joy directly. I'm going to give my ne- the next three weeks, and I'm going to be more joyful at the end of these three weeks. No, no, no. Our emotions don't work that way. Joy, like all our emotions, is a byproduct. We don't get to joy by pursuing joy. We get to joy by pursuing Jesus. And it's why we say value number one of Wheaton Bible Church, such a big deal, an enormous deal, that the gospel isn't the starting line. The gospel is the whole race. And so I live not in light of what I must do. I live every day of my life in light of what Jesus has done. I am loved. I am forgiven. I am adopted. And when I do that, joy is a byproduct. Jesus is a subterranean river that is the only ultimate source of joy. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray that you will bless this series. I want to pray that we will be different as a result of this time spent in your word. Would you use this profound meal to speak to us? And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.